welcome to the mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at was one of Chicago's most famous crimes, a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. This episode is the sixth of an eight-part series, available for download or to stream on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. On the blog, there is an easy email subscription sign-up if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you upon each new episode being aired. After Carl Wanderer had been found guilty of the murder of his wife and unborn child and been given a prison sentence that could be shortened to 13 years with good behavior, he still had to face another trial for the murder of the ragged stranger. Does any lawyer in the courtroom wish to defend this Wanderer? Chief Justice Charles McDonald asked as he tried to find an attorney willing to represent Carl. Finding no volunteers, the judge appointed Warren D. Bartholomew to represent Wanderer in the trial of what would technically be for the murder of John Doe, as the man known as the Ragged Stranger still remained unidentified. Months in the penitentiary had not harmed Wanderer. The Chicago Daily News reporter Ben Hecht described him thusly. His head shaved, a coat two sizes too large hanging from his shoulders, trousers with no pretension to style covering his legs, and a pair of stiff, homemade shoes encasing his feet, Wanderer still carried about him the air inseparable from a snappy dresser. Somewhere he obtained a sprinkling of perfume, and the lapel of his coat exuded a fragrance. Likewise, there was a blue tie, bright blue and giddy. From his position, he conducted himself as a pleased host at a social function. The reporters, all knowing that Carl was never shy with a quote, crowded around him and asked his thoughts on going to trial again. Sure, I'd just as soon be tried again for the murder of the ragged stranger or anything else. I had lots of fun at the last trial, except for a few minutes now and then when they got rough. I enjoyed it right along. Now, if they insist on trying me for killing the poor fish that tried to hold me and my wife up, let them go to it. I hope it's as much fun as the last time. Penitentiary life suited him well, he told the gaggle. I like it lots in the pen. I'm a shoemaker, you know. Made these shoes I got on. Pretty nifty, eh? But I'll pass up the shoemaking job for the chance to hear the boys go to it in the court again. Looking to make sure there was no fun in Carl's future, and hoping to avoid any type of compromise verdict, the prosecutors met with any and every member of the press they could. The word compromise took on a life of its own to remind every potential juror in Chicago of the sins of the previous jury who had given the triple slayer wanderer what could be a 13-year prison sentence. They wanted it known that they would spare no effort to ensure that the only outcome of the trial would be a death sentence. The lead-up to the Ragged Stranger trial was a game of cat and mouse by all the relevant parties. Carl's new role would be to play the insanity role. His defense promised a new tack from the one taken by attorneys Short and Gunther in the first trial. Bartholomew felt that the bewildering defense put on at the previous trial would not work again with the jury in the second trial. Carl continued speaking to the press, how could he stop at this point, and mixed his usual idiosyncrasies in with some poorly acted crazy. Typical wanderer bravado that the reporters had come to expect from him was followed with the first inkling that he was going to act like he was losing his mind. I, I thought I saw her, Ruth, one night. She held out her hand to me. She seemed to try to talk to me. I blinked and she went away. But I, I don't know if it was really her spirit. She wouldn't want to come here, do you think? As if the spectacle surrounding Carl's second trial wasn't enormous enough, Bartholomew made an announcement that would be talked about in nearly every corner of the city, from trading floor futures pits to high society tea parties. The big news? A woman attorney had been retained to assist in Carl's defense. The ratification of the 19th Amendment granting women equal voting rights to men, was less than six months old, and despite the glacially slow pace of women achieving equality in all walks of life, it was nudged in the right direction, however indirectly, by the Wanderer trial. The move was not entirely done out of the equal rights ventricle in Bartholomew's heart, however. He planned a defense built around the belief that Carl was insane, a trait he got from his mother, who had taken her own life after a nightmare of seeing her only son hanged from a tree. The motherly effect that a feminine lawyer could offer would be of use to Bartholomew. Another key to the hiring was that with the 19th Amendment passing, 
there was speculation that with women now on voting rolls, they would soon start showing up on jury roll call lists. Who better to welcome a feminine juror than a feminine attorney? And so, Mrs. Irene Lefkow was brought on to defend Carl. Showing that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, within ten minutes of the announcement of Mrs. Lefkow's hiring, the Office of State's Attorney Robert Crow announced that he too was planning on hiring a woman and appointed Miss Bessie Sullivan to Assistant State's Attorney. The trial for the murder of the ragged stranger would be the first time in Illinois history where two female attorneys, one prosecuting, one defending, had ever argued in a courtroom where the stakes were a man's life. One of her first acts for the defense was to file a motion that requested a special veneer for jurors in Carl's upcoming trial. Fearing that the widespread talk about the Wanderer case, both of the murder itself, but also of the first trial, would ensure that the defense could not seat an impartial jury, she asked for 100 jurors, double the normal number requested, to be called for jury selection. With 100 potential jurors to veneer, longtime court observers estimated that publicity around the case would lead to three weeks of jury selection. Carl Wanderer's notoriety had only grown since he'd escaped the gallows for his wife's murder, and the crowds of murder fans out to see him were even larger than the first trial. Several hundred lined up outside to try and score a seat for jury selection. Again, in Ben Heck's words, whether it was the placid, cold, sartorially complete wanderer that acted as the magnet for the many curious, his woman attorney Mrs. Irene Lefkow, or the fact that this was the first time in the history of Cook County murder trials that a man was to be tried on a John Doe indictment, they were there and they fought for places in the limited courtroom. Setting the tone for the state of Illinois in the prosecution of Carl Wanderer for the murder of John Doe was Assistant State's Attorney Lloyd Heth. He told the veneerman that he would ask for one of two verdicts, death by hanging or complete exoneration for Carl. In a case of preaching to the choir, Heth soon found that he would have his pick of jurors that shared the state's goals. While the prosecution found nearly all of the potential jurors to be acceptable, the court encountered difficulty finding men that had not already formed an opinion on Carl's guilt. Fifty veneermen came and went, with the court having only sat six jurors from those fifty men, and Judge David pinned the blame on the press for the situation. I am anxious that this man shall have a fair trial. The newspapers shall not comment upon what either side expects to prove. Too many veneermen are coming in here and stating that they cannot give Wanderer a fair trial because they have read too much about this case in the newspapers. The second panel of 50 men to be potential jurors was called. Carl listened to statement after statement from potential jurors who at a minimum cast doubt on his innocence or, at a maximum, flat out said he should have been hanged after his first trial. Such statements put Carl on notice that many men in the city wished to see great and violent harm brought upon him. His crimes were common knowledge to most of the city, and the potential jurors attested to this. A ray of hope shot through Carl, though, when Reynold Clemens was interviewed. When asked his occupation, he replied, A butcher. Wanderer took notice for the first time that day. A smile graced his lips. Maybe a fellow butcher would provide an open mind. Clemens was probed on whether he would be prejudiced by the fact that Carl was taken from the penitentiary to stand trial for a second murder. No, I'm not prejudiced about that, but I do think he ought to hang for the first time he was tried. That statement is highly improper, Judge David shouted, angrily jumping from his chair behind the bench. Mr. Clements was excused in quick order. Half a dozen potential jurors, though, had been in the courtroom to witness the judge's outburst. When it was their turn to be questioned, the six men all answered any questions posed to them, discreetly and guardedly, keeping any personal feelings to themselves. All six were accepted to the jury. What had been estimated to take three weeks was completed in less than three days as twelve jurors were finally sat. The quick seating of the jury had a profound effect on Carl. The happy-go-lucky shoemaker that hoped to get out of prison in about thirteen years now understood he had a very real battle to avoid death on the gallows. After seeing the chaos at the first trial, the judge and the bailiffs were prepared for the crush of trial fans that would be clamoring for a seat in the courtroom. Judge David ruled that women would be sat first, excluding girls under the age of 18, 
and then any interested men would be sat in the courtroom. Such a ruling resulted in that there not being many men in the courtroom. Assistant State's Attorney Lloyd Heth opened for the state and recited the base facts of the case. He reiterated throughout his remarks that death was the only verdict the state was after. The opening remarks also skirted Wanderer's Fifth Amendment rights as far as double jeopardy was concerned. The entire country knew that Wanderer was on trial for the slaying of John Doe, the ragged stranger, in name only. The real reason the state was trying him again was to right the wrong of his 25-year compromise sentence for his wife's killing, and the prosecutor sought to play on those emotions. We will show that in the spring of 1920, this defendant became dissatisfied with married life and decided the best way out was to kill his wife. Witnesses will disclose how he borrowed a pistol from his cousin, met the poor boob, and arranged with him for a pretended holdup that ended with the murder of his wife and the ragged stranger. Previewing their defense strategy, defense attorney W.D. Bartholomew's opening remarks agreed with nearly all the opening remarks made by the prosecutors and then proceeded to begin to cast his client in an unflattering light. We shall not attempt to dispute the fact that Wanderer killed this man. We offer no theory opposed to what the state has told you. Carl Wanderer is merely an insane boy, the son of an insane mother. Carl's mentality has been tested by a special board appointed by the governor. The result shows conclusively that he has the mentality of a child of 11. We shall prove this by four alienists, none of whom are being paid by us, that Carl Wanderer is and has been insane for some time. We shall not ask you to acquit him, but we shall ask you to send him where he belongs, in a hospital for the criminally insane. Assistant State's Attorney Heth was unimpeded in presenting his version of the facts to the jury when testimony began. Defense Attorney Bartholomew sat silently as the prosecution put the proverbial noose around Carl's neck. The prosecution had provided the defense with the same witness list that had testified in the first trial, and the testimony and evidence would soon mirror the former trial. The police testified, Ruth's family testified, their neighbors testified, the two Colt 45 pistols Providence was detailed, and the confession was read. Yet little or no cross-examination was forthcoming from the defense. Those in the courtroom, other than Carl, who might not have even noticed, grew more and more concerned as witness after witness was allowed to take the stand and offered unfettered tales on how Wanderer killed his wife and the John Doe that the trial was really supposed to be about. Ruth's mother, Eugenia Johnson, again took the stand and testified that, I had known him for two years before he married my daughter on October 1st, 1919. My daughter was 21 years old at the time of her death. At that time, she was pregnant seven months. Objection! W.D. Bartholomew shouted. That is objected to as immaterial, irrelevant, and incompetent, not tending to prove any issue in this case. Overruled, Judge David offered. Eugenia Johnson continued. Wanderer was a butcher working for his father. On June 21, 1920, Wanderer ate supper at home about half past seven. After supper, they went out. Ruth said they were going to a picture show. Between 9 and 9.15, I heard shot after shot down in the vestibule. I stepped out in the hall, and then I heard more shots coming through the glass and the door. I called down, Who is that? And Carl said, Ma, we're held up and Ruth is shot. I ran down to the door into the vestibule. Ruth was just behind the door in the corner. Ruth said, my knee and my stomach, and then, mama, is it real? Then she said, my baby is dead. Ruth lived about 15 or 20 minutes. I saw wounds on my daughter's body, one shot through her knee and one right through her body. A big hole on the left side. Objection, your honor. I'm objecting to all of this testimony, the defense attorney shouted out. Judge David agreed. Yes, 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 I'm overruling it. While the prosecution continued to offer testimony of the vile crime, Carl found the slow proceedings tiring. The man in the room with the most to lose lost a battle against boredom and fell asleep. 
sitting in his chair between two burly bailiffs. The defendant's chin bobbed up and down as he nodded off, oblivious to the fight for his life going on around him. Being led from the courtroom at the next recess, reporters asked how his catnaps were and if the trial was boring him. It's awfully slow. What's the matter with him? Carl replied. With court reconvened after the lunch recess, the fireworks of the afternoon would ensure Carl's undivided attention. Prosecutors had called Miss Julia Schmidt to the stand. An objection from Bartholomew over their relevance for testimony, though, led Judge David to dismiss the jury from the courtroom. In one of the first displays of his peculiar tendencies, Judge David spoke like a man with experience when he stated, It does not follow that if a man seeks a society of other women, he must necessarily have tired of his wife. He reasoned that just because Carl may or may not have loved Julia Schmidt didn't mean he must have fallen out of love with his wife, Ruth. But no man can really love two women at the same time, argued Lloyd Heth, assistant state's attorney. Judge David shook his head. It is being done every day. A few hundred years ago, it was openly done and customary. I don't think times have changed. I believe it to be prejudicial evidence to introduce, it having no bearing on the killing, and might give the jury a false impression. The judge stopped in mid-sentence an argument made by Assistant State's Attorney Milton Smith. Judge David said that since Smith was unmarried, he was therefore not qualified to argue on love, and the prosecutor should sit down and be quiet. With the ruling, Julia Schmidt was barred from being called by the prosecution to offer direct testimony as to her and Carl's relationship and the motive it provided for murder. After having their most explosive witness kept from testifying, the prosecution rested their case on the evidence they had presented thus far. The state's case had hinged on the fact that the real motive behind the triple slaying had been Carl's love for Julia Schmidt and his desire to kill his wife had been in order to run away with the young girl. Killing John Doe was simply a byproduct of that desire. The courthouse buzzed that this was the first break to go Carl's way and could vastly impact the trial. The defense of Carl Wanderer opened with his father, the butcher, recounting again how his wife had gone insane and committed suicide, and how he believed a similar fate had befallen Carl. Other family members offered a repeat of their testimony from the first trial as well. The action picked up when the defense started digging into their insanity defense and offering testimony from their experts, all of them, of course, declaring that Carl was insane. Director of the Chicago Psychopathic Laboratory, Dr. William Hickson, testified again that he had diagnosed dementia praecox as Carl's affliction. The cross-examination of Dr. Hickson, conducted both by the state and the court, held up standard psychiatric tests to ridicule and offered another insight into the mind of Judge David. In his testimony, Dr. Hickson related a test he had given Carl. The question was, My neighbor's been having strange visitors. First a doctor went into the house, then a lawyer, then a minister. What is happening in the house of my neighbor? His answer was marriage. I asked him what the lawyer was doing there, and he said, Witness or best man. Judge David asked, What did he tell you the doctor was doing there? No, no sir, I didn't ask him that. He gave a, a wrong answer in the first place. What is wrong with it? Judge David asked. Well, the, the standardized answer, No, 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 no. What is wrong with it is, Might it not be answered 40 different ways? Judge David said. After telling the judge the correct answer should have been, A death, the judge told him to move on. Dr. Hickson then explained more of the tests used to form his diagnosis. I had six blocks, and he was told to put them in order of their weights. He missed that, failed to put them in the proper order. That indicated bad judgment. I have examined thousands of school children who missed that test rarely. Then I asked him a question called the comprehensive question. Suppose you wanted to go someplace and miss a train. What would you do? His answer was, Wait for the next one. Judge David jumped back in. Well, doctor, I don't know what the answer is supposed to be, what the answer is. Suppose he would say, I would cuss the conductor. Would that be wrong? I'm trying to tell you what he said, your honor. Then to Bartholomew, the doctor lamented. When I tell him, he interrupts me. Judge David scoffed at Dr. Hickson. 
Why, those questions are ridiculous. Any sane man might give half a dozen answers and not hit on the one you claim is right. Why, I could give half a dozen sane answers myself. Verbally sparring back, Dr. Hickson corrected the judge on the vagaries of mental terms. They wouldn't be sane, Your Honor. They would indicate deviation from normality. <laughs> judge David often took testimony as a personal affront to his intellect, and this was one of those times. Do you mean to intimate that I couldn't answer those questions in a normal manner? demanded Judge David. In what must have sounded a bit like a Groucho Marx routine, the alienist retorted, Well, I'd like to see your answers. <laughs> Judge David pounded his gavel angrily as the courtroom burst into laughter. A Monday morning finally gave way to a welcome diversion. The Chicago Daily Tribune reported, Flowers and perfume lent a feminine atmosphere to Judge David's courtroom today. Though unfortunate that the court would have to listen to more testimony from more alienists, at least today that testimony would be given by a female alienist being examined by a female attorney. Ben Hecht offered his take on the day's proceedings. It may be a man's world, but you couldn't have told it in Judge David's court today. Dr. Florence Fowler was on the witness stand, violets in her hat, while Attorney Lefkow wielded a dainty cambric handkerchief, and a hundred or more men, including the jury and the judge, looked on with a what's-the-world-coming-to air about them and appreciative smiles on their faces. Mrs. Lefkow's questions, couched in acceptable legal bombast, sounded nevertheless curiously feminine. The two women, asking and answering questions, contributed to a startlingly modern atmosphere to the dragging trial. Wanderer appeared the only unimpressed person present. United News' staff correspondent, Alexander Jones's words, tell not only of a court case, but of a different time. Susan B. Anthony would have smiled a broad, appreciative smile had she been in the courtroom of Judge Joseph David here Monday. She would have encountered not only a hundred or so women voters, but in addition, she would have heard two attractive members of her sex battling to save a man's life before the law. Mrs. Irene Lefkow, as attractive a Portia as ever addressed a court, is now trying to save Wanderer from the gallows. Mrs. Lefkow, attempting to prove that the man was, and is, insane, called as an expert alienist, Dr. Florence Fowler. Dr. Fowler, not to appear too masculine, perhaps, now and then adjusted a becoming hat covered with violets as she reeled off long psychopathic words. Mrs. Lefkow made it possible for spectators to keep in mind that she is a very feminine person by smoothing her wavy hair and twirling a useless bit of lace handkerchief between questions. My name is Florence Fowler. I am a physician licensed to practice in Illinois. I am able to tell from tests and examinations whether a person is sane or insane. I know the defendant, Carl Wanderer. I have examined him twice at the county jail. Mrs. Lefkow questioned the doctor. Doctor, assume that Carl Wander's mother was insane, that she had religious delusions, made attempts to commit suicide, was eating matches, turning on the gas, finally committing suicide by cutting her throat. Assume further that Carl Wander's uncle was insane and in the insane asylum for 23 years. Based on this information, can you form an opinion as to how long Carl Wanderer has been insane? My opinion would be that he would have a defective intellect from birth, and the manifestation of insanity might come on at any time during stress. Based upon the opinion which you derived from the examination of Wanderer, have you an opinion as to whether Carl Wanderer was insane or sane on June 21, 1920? And please tell the jury why this is your belief. I have. My opinion is, I believe he was insane. In my tests, I tried to frighten him. I tried to grieve him. I tried to get some emotional response from him, but he maintained a complete negative passivity. His reflexes are abnormally sharp, and his hands very blue and cold. His orientation is often befuddled. He talks to himself, and he often evidences extreme rigidity of the muscles. Dr. Fowler went on to recount, how Wanderer had shown no emotion, retelling how his mother had committed suicide by slicing her own throat. Have you noticed any instances of poor judgment on his part? 
Yes, since he's been in jail and the penitentiary, he has at all times been content. A man who is content in jail is using poor judgment. The prosecution, in a bit of a chauvinistic play to the all-male jury, questioned Dr. Fowler's experience. She proudly retorted, Oh, I took my degree at the College of Medicine and Surgery in Chicago. I have specialized in mental and nervous diseases and spent my entire time in this work. I am head resident physician and have examined 15,000 cases at the Cook County Psychopathic Hospital. Writing of this exchange, Alexander Jones ended his article. The two women looked at the mere man who had asked this question and then smiled at each other. A bit pityingly, it was thought. One of the more intriguing theories offered by W.D. Bartholomew in the defense was the testimony from his last witness, Dr. James Whitney Hall. Dr. Hall theorized that, as Wanderer had told the reporter at the coroner's inquest, bad booze might have played a role in Wanderer's mental condition. Alcoholic insanity was a real diagnosis, and had Carl spent nights on West Madison in cheap saloons, chances were he probably came across bad whiskey. The kind of stuff sold nowadays labeled as whiskey is enough to drive a man crazy. Scores of patients are taken to the hospitals every month with alcoholic insanity, the doctor testified. Dr. Hall theorized that a 25% increase seen in the number of insanity cases in the city could be attributed to the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act prohibiting alcohol. He testified, For the past six years, I've been a member of the Insanity Commission of Cook County. I know the defendant Carl Wanderer. My first interview was about his early life, the second about his adult life. One occasion was devoted to discussing military matters. Another I spent a whole afternoon on a physical examination. When I made the physical examination, I first went into details about any injuries which he might have sustained, and he related several. He said he ran into a lamppost when he was 14, striking his head, and was knocked unconscious, and that his head bothered him for quite some time after that. That when 19 years old, in the army, he was practicing some hurdle jumping, and his horse threw him, and he struck his head, and came to in the hospital. Shortly after that, while running in camp, he struck a wire, was thrown violently to the ground, and was again knocked unconscious. He said his first day in the trenches, a German shell fell near the dugout he was standing in. Frightened, he fell to the ground, got up nauseated, and was very nervous and unable to sleep for three or four nights afterwards. In 1919, while in France, he was playing baseball and was struck in the head and again knocked unconscious. You're out! In December 1917, he was shot by a hold-up man. On July 9, 1920, while in a cell, Officer Grady hit him with his fist and hit him with a blackjack over his face and stomped on his bare foot. This is the history of injuries which he gave me. After getting this history, I made a thorough physical examination. Wanderer is a man quite undersized, with muscular development pretty good, though muscular tone varied greatly during all of the examinations. Sometimes he would appear quite flabby, muscles soft and loose. At other times, the muscles were tense and contracted. And when I tried to get his reflexes, he became so tight and rigid, it was impossible to get a response. On one occasion, I was almost unable to get his pulse because of the tight conditions he held his hands. The feeling of his skin was clammy and unhealthy. The mental examination consisted of observations and interviews with rather comprehensive cross-questions, testing his memory, judgments, emotions, and reason. He told me he was born in Chicago, 1895, that his mother committed suicide, that he and his father did not get to understand each other, that he was high-tempered but would never talk back, and about the time he quit school, he began to have peculiar feelings that there was some power controlling him, and he began to hear voices giving him orders. I discovered a very characteristic attitude, breaking into my conversation, stopping, looking around, making motions with his lips like he was answering voices. It occurred very frequently when nobody was talking to him. He related several occasions that he heard these voices. One occasion, before he was married, he left his father's shop and was gone three or four days in obedience to the command of these voices. 
He said since Ruth's death that there was hardly a night he didn't have a conversation with her. He would hear her voice, and they would discuss matters. After all this long, drawn-out examinations, I concluded that he had no emotions. I never got him to cry or to laugh. I was never able to make him sad. Nothing seemed to affect him. He was happy in Joliet, happy in jail, happy if he was hung, happy if turned loose. Mr. Bartholomew then asked him, From your examination, physical and mental, and conversations with him, have you an opinion as to whether Carl Wanderer is sane or insane? I have an opinion. That opinion is, he is insane. With all the defense witnesses having been called, Bartholomew made a motion of the judge that he wished to introduce evidence to the jury regarding the double jeopardy concerns that had arisen in the trial. Judge David cut him off before he could finish speaking. As I understand it, the defendant wishes to introduce before the jury the fact that the defendant, heretofore, was tried for the murder of his wife, found guilty, and sentenced for a term of 25 years. Now, you are offering to do that upon the theory of former jeopardy? I'm of the opinion that you can't present it this way. I'm of the opinion that the plea of former jeopardy is not proper. The evidence shall not be introduced. With the defense having finished their case, the prosecution began its rebuttal. Carl had been his usual carefree self recently until the prosecution called their first rebuttal witness. Carl's first lieutenant in France, Lieutenant Lester Atkins, was called to the stand. The lieutenant testified in a military-like cadence. My name is Lester Atkins. I live in Portland, Oregon. My profession is attorney at law. I was connected with the Army during the late war. I know the defendant in this case, Carl Wanderer. I first met him at Fort Oglethorpe in the 17th Machine Gun Battalion of the 6th Division. Wanderer was then under my command. I was first lieutenant of the company, of which he was first sergeant. We were there several weeks, and I saw Wanderer every day. I saw him report for drill, stand retreat, dismiss the company at night, and saw him at the company office doing paperwork. We went to the Vosges Mountains, which was not an active sector, though Wanderer was with me one time under fire. The Germans were shelling us every night about supper time for 10 to 30 minutes. During the different times that I observed Wanderer and the different conversations I had with him, I formed an opinion as to his mental condition. While he was in the army, in my opinion, Wanderer was sane. On cross-examination, Attorney Bartholomew asked, Did you ever see anything cowardly or sneaking about him? Nothing at all. Did you ever see him do anything that you did not approve of in a manly way? Nothing. In what would become a recurring theme, Bartholomew questioned the prosecution witness what promises or payments he'd been given by the state's attorney's office. Lieutenant Atkins answered, I've been in Chicago every day since Sunday night. I was first approached about this matter about the first of the month when I received a letter from the state's attorney's office. The letter said Carl Wanderer was on trial for murder and his defense was insanity. And it asked me to tell what I knew about Wanderer. I answered the letter and arranged with the state's attorney to have my expenses paid. They amount to about $500, which would be almost $6,000 in 2018 dollars. With the door to Wanderer's mind having been opened wide by the defense, the prosecution was now going to be able to get their star witness, the other woman, Julia Schmidt, up onto the stand to rebut testimony of Carl being insane. Mr. Heth asked her, Miss Schmidt, during any of the times you rode with Wanderer in the taxi cab, did he kiss you? He did not kiss me the first time. I think he did the second and the third and on the other occasions we were in the cab. He appeared at those times to be in a happy frame of mind, joked and talked with me. I have an opinion from the conversations I had with Carl and the observations I had of him as to whether he was sane or insane. I believe he was sane. Chicago Herald and Examiner reporter Charlie MacArthur offered similar rebuttal. I am the same Charles MacArthur who testified on direct in this case. I first had a conversation with Wanderer on July 11th at detention home number one. The next time was on July 17th at the county jail. I had a conversation with him on July 16th for three or four hours. I had a conversation with him on the following day for two hours or so. 
Assistant State's Attorney Heth asked him, From your conversations you had with Wanderer and your observations during these periods, have you an opinion as to Wanderer's mental condition? In your opinion, was Wanderer sane or insane? Yes, sir, he was sane. Cross-examination by Mr. Bartholomew sought to revisit MacArthur's jailhouse interviews with Carl. You asked him eight or ten times if he was crazy, right? About six times. I thought I'd better ask him that, in fairness to himself. Were you subpoenaed in this case? No, sir. You know they can't compel you to come here without a subpoena. I regard testifying as a duty, as a citizen. You made the statement around town that you're going to hang this man, didn't you? I never made that statement. Most assuredly not. Not to be outdone by the defense's alienness, the state put on their own alienness to offset the prior testimony of Carl's mental state. My name is Dr. Clarence Neiman. I'm a physician and superintendent for the Cook County Psychopathic Hospital. I am able to tell, upon examination, if a person is sane or insane. I know the defendant Carl Wanderer. I was present in court in the month of November 1920 during the trial of the People versus Wanderer and observed the defendant during the trial for three days while he was on the witness stand. I paid attention to the questions asked him and the answers he made, and I observed his general physical appearance. From my observations of the defendant during the time he was in court and on the witness stand, I formed an opinion as to whether or not Wanderer was suffering from dementia praecox catatonia. In my opinion, he was not suffering from any form of dementia praecox. After prosecutors had run through all the alleged nefarious deeds committed by Wanderer, cross-examination by Mr. Bartholomew asked, Doctor, what would you say he was suffering from then, the man that did all these things? I wouldn't say he was suffering from anything, except that he was a bad man, and as such might be classed as a psychopathic personality, something like that. What do you mean by psychopathic personality? A criminal, a man out of touch with his surroundings. Would it make any difference to you, in your opinion, if all the evidence was obtained by confession, an involuntary confession, from the defendant himself, and there was no other evidence to sustain it? The forced confession from him, and no other evidence? That would make a difference. Upon being further pressed by the defense attorney, the doctor admitted to some shocking details about how he arrived at his diagnosis. I have never personally examined this man, nor seen him examined by anyone. I have never tested his mentality, nor seen anyone else test it. You mean to tell the jury that without making an examination of a patient, without testing his reflexes, his eyes, his pupils, without a physical examination of him, without talking to him, that you're able to say whether or not he is sane or insane? I didn't say that. I simply stated about his having dementia praecox. That is all, Mr. Bartholomew said. He strode confidently back to the defense table. Ever so slowly, things had seemingly started to fall into place for the defense. And then Judge David got involved again. As the attorney returned to his seat, Judge David began his own examination of Dr. Neiman. Wait, let's see, let's see what you mean by that, Judge David asked him. Defense attorney Bartholomew tried to put a stop to this. Now, Your Honor, I don't, uh, I, do you object? Yes. Objection sustained. I want to ask two or three questions. Doctor, what is dementia praecox? Dementia praecox is a form of insanity which usually begins between the ages of 10 and 20. Its main facts are an emotional disturbance and splitting of personality. It often shows an intellectual disturbance and in its various forms shows various mental disturbances. How is it treated? These cases are treated usually by psychoanalysis. There is another form that is usually considered of toxic origin, infections, etc. That is the work of Henry Cotton, who treated these subjects resulting from extensive extractions of teeth, clearing up infections all over the body. The older forms of dementia praecox are treated by hydrotherapy, institutional care, and of late by occupational therapy. In another frightening look at how far we've come medically, Henry Cotton was a psychiatrist that was held in somewhat high regard at the time for his work with mental illness. Cotton believed that mental ailments were the result of infections in the body that needed to be removed in order for the illness to be healed. It wasn't until the mid to late 1920s that Cotton's seemingly successful practice of surgically removing teeth, 
testicles, ovaries, spleens, or tonsils to treat mental illness was found to be based on falsified and exaggerated cure rates. Prosecutors called Dr. Henry Gahagan. I'm a physician specializing in mental and nervous diseases. I have seen the defendant in this case, Carl Wanderer. I first saw him on the first day of the trial. Since then, I have been in the courtroom frequently and have observed the defendant as he came out from the jury room, back of the jury box, and took his place at the table. He came out of the room and carefully scanned the audience, then held his eyes to the floor, walked quickly around to the chair he now occupies, seated himself, pulled up his trouser, put his arm on the table, and made himself comfortable. There was quite a change in him, though, when Lieutenant Atkins took the witness stand. He flushed up, moved about in his chair, and showed considerable emotion. When Julius Schmidt took the stand, he flushed up again and acted in a similar manner. When the jury left the room, he appeared more carefree, wiped his face with his handkerchief, blew his nose, looked around, smiled at his attorneys, and acted differently than he did prior to that. He seemed pleased about the arguments made out of the presence of the jury. I have an opinion as to whether he was suffering or is now suffering from dementia praecox of any form. My opinion is he was sane and that the man never at any time in his life had any form of dementia praecox. The fact that Wanderer flushed when Lieutenant Atkins and Julius Schmidt went up on the witness stand indicated to me that he had emotions and the way he walked in the courtroom and the way he got up from his chair indicated to me that he did not have a catatonic condition. On cross-examination by Mr. Bartholomew, the defense attorney asked him, Sitting back where Dr. Crone is? Sitting back where he is? You could see the defendant's face and you could see him flush? I could see him, yes. Would you be willing to give an opinion that would involve a man's life by sitting back of him in the courtroom? I could give an opinion. Dr. Gahagan, you say, because you saw him walk in here in a certain way, and that he flushed up and blew his nose one time, that, in your opinion, is conclusive that he has not got dementia praecox in any form. It is. In attempting to save some face after Dr. Gahagan's diagnosis from afar, Dr. William Crone was the final rebuttal witness for the state and testified that he personally examined Carl thoroughly. The courtroom was buzzing, not in expectation of more thrilling testimony from another alienist, though. No, the uproar was due to one of the murder fans in attendance, silent film star Lillian Gish, one of the most famous actresses in the world at the time. Chicago Herald Examiner reporter Charlie MacArthur wrote in his article that it was said that the rebuttal testimony of Dr. Crone, one of the state's most important witnesses, was considerably weakened by the counter-attraction provided by Ms. Gish. Judge David pounded his gavel and called for order. My name is William Crone. I'm a physician specializing in nervous and mental diseases. In all, I've treated about 25,000 cases of nervous and mental diseases. I am able to tell as a result of my experience whether a man is sane or insane. I know the defendant Carl Wanderer, I examined him on the evening of July 12, 1920. I told him I was there to examine him as to his mental and physical condition. I took his pulse, and after going through some calisthenic exercises, I took his knee jerks. I asked him if his father and mother were living, and he said his mother had died of suicide. He said he had married Ruth Wanderer, and that he had been working as a butcher, working up to the time of his alleged homicide. I asked him about his work in the butcher shop, and he said it was just a rut, that in the army he was saluted and was somebody, and in the butcher shop he wasn't anybody. No saluting, people just kicked and growled, and he didn't like the life of the butcher shop as compared with the army. From my observation of Wanderer and questions put to him and his answers, I formed an opinion as to whether he was sane or insane. He was sane. I believe he is faking insanity. Bartholomew asked in his cross-examination, Is it possible that a man suffering from dementia praecox might laugh and still be insane? Yes, he might still laugh. They usually laugh at inappropriate times, don't they? Not always. Are you saying a man suffering from dementia praecox has no emotions at all? Oh no, 
I've seen some said to be suffering from that form of insanity who have laughed. Carl couldn't help himself and laughed out loud. (laughs) It had been a slow and tedious trial, filled with more scientific and medical terms that contained more syllables than most of the men on the jury would ever hear again. And fortunately, it was almost over. Closing arguments would bring about a close of the trial for a crime committed almost nine months prior. Assistant State's Attorney Lloyd Heth again made very clear what verdict he expected from the jury. His attempts at levity after the long trial were appreciated by nearly everyone in the courtroom, minus Carl, of course. There is plenty of rope there, and it couldn't be better employed than as a noose for the neck of Carl Wanderer. We want no compromise verdict. We want Wanderer hanged. Either this defendant is insane, or he should pay the penalty for the crime on the gallows. Your duty is clear in this case. Don't compromise on your verdict. You should choose death or insanity. I do not believe you can honestly return a verdict stating that the evidence showed Carl Wanderer is insane. I therefore ask you to send Carl Wanderer to the gallows. Never in the annals of crime has there been so dastardly and cold-blooded a murder as this one. There can be no middle course. Either the defendant at the bar is insane or he is a cool, heartless murderer. They tell us Wanderer is a man absolutely devoid of emotion. Do you think a man without emotion of any kind would plan a murder such as I have depicted? Do you think he would have kissed Julia Schmidt? Men of this jury, you go back into the history of crime. You go back into the recesses of your imagination. You conjure up in your mind any state of facts that an elastic imagination will permit, and I ask you where, in the history of crime, can you find a case that deserves a death penalty, if the crime Carl Warner committed does not? Where can you find it? I say where. Must a man, in order to deserve the death penalty, hack to pieces and destroy the body of his victim before he deserves the death penalty? Or is it sufficient for a man to sit down and coolly and calmly over a period of days, while the voice of reason and humanity may be heard, to deliberately plan and conjure up how he can take the life of two innocent people? Objection! Mr. Bartholomew shouted. I object to the statement, two people. The objection is overruled. The jury are not trying the defendant for anything else but what is charged in the indictment. Mr. Heth continued from where he left off. Is it possible, men of the jury, that wherever a man will sit down coolly and deliberately to write a plan and keep it in his mind, day after day, working out the details of how he will take the life of two innocent people, can it be possible that a man that will do this will not deserve the death penalty? Objection! If the court pleases, I object to that statement. Changing his mind from 30 seconds prior, Judge David ruled, Yes, I will sustain the objection. We are not trying that case. I say, we are not trying this defendant for killing Ruth Wanderer. Mr. Hett replied to the judge, I understand that, Your Honor. I'm merely talking about the evidence in this case. The evidence in this case is that Ruth Wanderer was killed, and she had a right to live. Objection! I want to object again to that statement, Mr. Bartholomew shouted. Judge David said, I have ruled. Save your point. I've already told the jury what we are trying. Go on, Mr. Heth. Heth continued. The ragged stranger had a right to live, and Wanderer deliberately and coolly planned how he could take away from that man his God-given right to life, and he snuffed out his life like he would snuff out the life of a candle. He has deliberately gone out to take away a human life. I said at the beginning of this case, it is not a pleasant duty for me to stand before you and argue that way but I believe that it is my duty as a prosecutor to do everything that I can to see that this is a safe community in which to live. And I know that it is not a safe place in which to live when a jury will compromise a verdict in a case of this sort. Either Carl Wanderer is insane and should go to the insane asylum, or else he should pay the penalty for his black crime on the gallows. And you have the testimony of Dr. Singer before you, the man who is state alienist, and he said Wanderer is sane. If you find him insane, what then? What then? The minute that Wanderer recovers his sanity, if you find at the time he committed his murder he was insane, the minute that Wanderer recovers his sanity, he is released. 
Objection, Mr. Bartholomew stated. Judge David agreed with the defense attorney. I will not allow you to argue that. The jury will have nothing to do with what results from their verdict. The objection is sustained. Mr. Hath continued back to the jury. Well, if you find Wanderer at the time he committed his crime was insane, and is insane now, then Wanderer goes to an insane asylum. The state alienist in this case says Wanderer is sane. Men, your duty is clear in this case. I say in repeating it, don't compromise. You must determine whether Wanderer is a murderer, or whether he is a lunatic, an insane man. And I say, in all fairness, after surveying all of this testimony, that no jury could ever come to an honest verdict that this man was insane at any time. He deserves the extreme penalty of the law, and I believe that you will send Carl Wanderer to the gallows. The moment Mrs. Irene Lefkow had first appeared before court that morning, dressed in a new white dress and hat to match, word spread through the city that the woman lawyer would be making part of the defense's closing argument to the jury. All men or professional women in the city were said to come out in support of their fellow sister. Despite, or possibly because of, the large throng of women dressed in their finest in the gallery, Warren Bartholomew, not Irene Lefkow, began the defense closing arguments after the noon recess. Wanderer is just a poor simpleton, he started, pointing at his client sitting at the trial table for emphasis. His confession was hounded out of the poor fellow by men in the state's attorney's office. He was a man without a friend, and every hand was against him. It is preposterous to think that he could have gone out into the street and induced any man to go through the alleged fake holdup. Bartholomew would want to speak of how the sick man was in need of an asylum, not the gallows. Justice is not served by executing a mentally defective man, he pleaded to them. Bartholomew reiterated all the awful things that had happened to the poor simpleton that drove him to his insanity. Life had been cruel to the poor butcher boy's skull, he said. Not to let stand his defense of his client, Bartholomew turned prosecutor and put the state and those that made its case on trial themselves. He criticized the prosecution for paying their witnesses' travel expenses and for their testimony. Of Wanderer's old army buddy, Lieutenant Lester Atkins, Bartholomew said, I served in the old 3rd Kentucky. I don't know what you gentlemen think of a man who will come to Chicago for $500 to hang his old army buddy, but I wouldn't do it for $5 million. It was said that while lambasting Chicago Herald and Examiner reporter Charlie MacArthur, that Bartholomew got so worked up, he, quote, melted his collar, end quote. He accused MacArthur of having been sent over here by his paper to dictate to you what your verdict shall be. He posed as being smarter than you, intelligent men, and indirectly, he challenged you to return a verdict of death. Are you going to truckle to him, or are you going to walk out of this building tomorrow with clear consciences, knowing you did your duty? Did you notice the glib way he took the stand to tell you Wanderer was sane? How does he know? The effrontery, the brazen gall of it. Ben Hecht ended his article on the March 18, 1921 Chicago Daily News. During his attorney's desperate pleading with the jury to save him from the rope, Wanderer sat with his much-discussed head in his hands. The jury gave it a critical eye now and then, presumably looking for bumps. There were none visible. In his instructions to the jury, before their deliberations, Judge David explained what the definition of insanity was as it related to the trial. Every person is presumed to be sane until the contrary is shown. Where insanity is urged as a defense for the commission of a crime, such insanity must exist at the time of the commission of the offense. With the protracted deliberations of the first trial still fresh in everyone's minds, there was no overwhelming urgency about the courtroom once the jury got the verdict about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The court's murder fans knew that the jury would eat lunch before starting their deliberations, so many of the fans did likewise and left the courtroom. Around 2.15, after the jury had eaten their lunch, they summoned one of their attending bailiffs. They had a verdict. Judge David was not in the courthouse, however, and a clerk had to track him down enjoying a luncheon on Michigan Avenue and return him to court. Reconvening around 3 o'clock, 
The judge asked the jury for their verdict. The foreman passed a paper with Carl's future on it to the clerk. Judge David asked the jury foreman, Amberg Ambrose, to affirm the jury's verdict. We find the defendant, Carl Wanderer, guilty as charged and recommend that he be hanged. Stoic to the end, Carl received the verdict like the soldier he was. While it was said that his attorney, Mrs. Lefkow, burst into tears as the death verdict was read. It was said that after an hour-long lunch, the jury cast four ballots. The first was to elect a foreman. Mr. Ambrose was selected. The second ballot was to determine Carl's sanity. He was unanimously found to be sane. The third ballot was to decide Carl's guilt. He was unanimously found to be guilty. And the fourth and final ballot was to determine the sentence Carl should receive. He was unanimously found to be deserving of the death penalty. The deliberations and balloting that would send Carl to his death on the gallows took 12 minutes. Led from the courtroom with the same nonchalance that he'd been let in with, reporters asked about his mother-in-law and Carl's boast about being retried if his in-laws weren't happy with the first verdict. Well, I hope they're satisfied now. I hope my mother-in-law is satisfied. If she is, then I am. The March 19th Chicago Daily Tribune contained an editorial extolling the latest verdict. Paraphrased, the editorial said, Carl Wanderer, who escaped the rope when he was tried for murdering his wife, has been sentenced to hang for the murder of the man he hired to help him. The vagaries of the crime and punishment were almost fantastic in this case. Twelve men became so confused in their thought, and probably in their desire to serve justice, that they found that he committed the crime and also found he was sane. If it had not been for the unknown derelict, Wander might have been free in about 13 years. Then we should have thought that not he, but society was crazy. In this eccentric play of crime and punishment, the rigor came after the climax. Justice has taken a long road, but by detours, it has come to its destination. One of Carl's neighbors on Murderer's Row would comment on justice being meted out. He got the rap that was coming to him. The underworld generally approves of the sentence. On the next, The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, The Governor is Doing What? Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for their help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode, number seven, will air on Monday, September 3rd. We'll release new episodes every other Monday through the end of September. We're going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. The song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy. He went upstairs to make a bed And not one word to a mother said Her mother, she went upstairs too Says, daughter, dear daughter, what troubles you? Oh, mother, oh, mother, I cannot tell That railroad boy I love so well He's courted me my life away And now at home he will not stay Railroad boy goes and sits down. He takes that strange girl on his knee, and he tells to her what he won't tell me. Her father, he came in from work. And said, where's daughter, she seems so hurt. He went upstairs to give her hope. 
but found her hanging on a rope. He took his knife and cut her down, and in her bosom these words he found. God dig my grave, both wide and deep. Place a marble slab at my head and feet, and over my coffin place a snow white dove to warn this world that I died for love.